Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're reading verses 24 to 49. Um, if you're new, you're visiting us, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, we're glad you're joining us. Uh, if you haven't been here in a while, or if this is your first time, we're in a series in the book of Daniel called Faithfulness in a Foreign Land. Um, and in this series, our basic aim is to answer the question, what does it mean to live as God's people uh, in this world, in a home, in a land that is not our own? And so today's sermon is called Living in a Foreign Kingdom. And one practice we do at Cornerstone in order to show uh, our act of worship in reading and receiving God's word is we stand for the reading of God's word. So friends, would you stand with me as we are reading Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 49. Last week as I was reading this, um, I'm not sure if you heard, but uh, Chloe up front said, why is he reading so fast? Um, you know, it's, it's a long passage, um, so I will read through it a little quicker, but I do encourage you, if you have the phone either on your Bible, a physical Bible, or there should be a Bible in front of you, that you do keep the Bible open to check the references uh, as it is a long passage, and I will read through it a bit quickly. So friends, hear now the reading of God's word from Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers who show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries may know to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. 
But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to, to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And friends, would you join me in prayer once more as we ask God's blessing now? Father, your word is given to us as the perfect word, and it's given to us but it's shared through such an imperfect messenger. And so we ask, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would be present with us, that you would be speaking to us through your word, that everything that I share, Lord, today, the things that are good and true and faithful, would stick and land and convict and heal and bind people's hearts, but all the things that are unhelpful, that aren't used for building up, Lord, that you would cause the fall, Lord, to the side and to scatter. Because at the end of the day, Lord, we want to hear your word, and we want to be fed its truth, and we want to know, Lord, the God who speaks to us, the God who calls us his own. So make yourself known, O Lord, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin today, I want us to think uh, about two things particularly. Um, the first question is this. How should Christians relate to and live in this world? So how should a Christian relate to the world and live in the world? And then secondly, as you look, about your, look at your own life, how have you been living and relating to this world? How do you live and relate to the world and the kingdom of man around you? Because there are often two errors that plague the church. Two errors that Christians fall into when relating to the church. And the first error is that of separatism. Separation, where we completely withdraw from the world. We separate ourselves from the world. And the second error is one of assimilation, where we completely look just like the world. We become just like the world. And so I just briefly want to consider both of those errors. You know, the first error of separate separation or separatism, right? This is a view where you refrain from engaging with anything in this world because you deem life in this world as worldly. And so you essentially live as if Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven was that he, he looked at his disciples and he said, you know, I'm coming back. So just stay where you are. Don't touch anything. Don't speak. 
I'll be right back. And so a lot of us, we kind of live our lives in this world, uh, not in any kind of substantial, meaningful way, other than simply this life, we're just passing time until Jesus returns. And so some of you don't engage with the world that's around you. You keep yourself separate and uninvolved. You think it's more holy to live in that kind of way. Uh, Not too long ago, somebody visited my apartment and they commented, oh, your place looks so nice. How long have you been here? A few months? And uh, I embarrassingly had to tell them that I'd been there over three years, uh, and it just looked like I had been there for a few months because I am a bachelor, I have no decorations up, I have no pictures, nothing personal, nothing in my home that says, this is home, somebody lives here. (laughs) You know, I think some of you live life here in this world so detached, so uninterested, so uninvolved in the affairs of this world because you don't want to get sullied by it. You want to keep a distance. And so you refrain from engaging in anything about this world. That's the error of separation. On the other hand, there's the error of assimilation. And this is basically living in a way where functionally uh, you live as if Jesus is never coming back. As if Jesus said before his ascension into heaven, I'm going to step out for a bit and it's going to be a while, so get comfortable and make yourself at home. And so as a result, you live your life totally committed and invested into this world. You know, every once in a while uh, when I travel, I have to share a hotel room with, with somebody. And I'm always intrigued by a very uh, particular group of people who, when they get into a hotel room, they unpack their suitcase and they take all of their clothes out and they put it into the dresser of the hotel room. But we're leaving the next morning. And I'm not talking about hanging up a dress shirt or a suit to get the wrinkles out. I'm talking about putting every single belonging into every single drawer. Uh, And to be honest, I can't help but judge a little bit because I'm thinking, this isn't your home. We're literally leaving in eight hours. What are you doing? Are you forgetting that? And I think some of us live life in this world like that, too attached. We're forgetting this is a foreign land. This is not our permanent home. And yet we've bound up all of our affairs into the things of this world. And we forget Jesus is coming back to take us to our true home. So some of us have assimilated too much into this world. Now, I'm not sure on the spectrum where you tend, where you lean toward, but the book of Daniel, particularly this chapter, it helps us think through, okay, as a Christian living in a foreign land that is not my home, how am I supposed to navigate life? How am I supposed to avoid the extremes of assimilation and looking just like the world and avoid the extreme of separation, having nothing to do with this world? So as we read Daniel 2, I hope it it corrects and it challenges our convictions uh, so that we don't grow in conformity to the world, but in conformity to the word. So here's today's gospel truth. Here's the one sentence summary today. Our heavenly citizenship should make us the best kind of earthly citizens. Our heavenly citizenship should make us the best kind of earthly citizens. And so if we could leave this gospel truth up here for a little bit, I want to talk about this uh, under three headings. Uh, First is an earthly kingdom, second, an eternal kingdom, and then thirdly, um, engaging both kingdoms. So an earthly kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and how do we engage both kingdoms? And so the first point is this, an earthly kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, he has his dream. Nobody in the kingdom can reveal what the dream is except for Daniel. And so Daniel, by God's grace, receives uh, the dream, the interpretation, and then he describes it to the king. And so if you look at verse 31, this is what he says to the king. He says, you saw, O kings, and behold, uh, a great image 
uh, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. And so basically this is the dream. We've already read this, but the dream is that um, Daniel sees and what Nebuchadnezzar sees is this great statue. And this statue is made of four distinct parts. Uh, and this gets really confusing and it can get really tedious, but essentially the four parts of the statue represent four kingdoms. And um, Daniel's going to make it clear later in verse 38, but he actually says to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he says, Babylon is represented by the head of gold. And then, of course, as you kind of go through, there's all these different, there's the chest, uh, um, chest made out of silver, which represents, in history, it represents Media Persia. And then you have the middle and the thighs made of bronze, which is going to represent Greece and, you know, Alexander the Great who comes. And then the legs and the feet of iron are going to represent Rome. Now, um, some people get so stuck up on what each specific kingdom is, and they try to relate it now and say, well, you know, is this Russia? And you try to kind of relate all of these different kingdoms to, to the kingdoms nowadays, but that's not the point. The simple point is this. When he looks at the statue, the statue represents different earthly kingdoms. And at the end of the day, the simple point is this. All of these kingdoms, they stood in glory, but only for a little while. Because just as these earthly kingdoms were built up, they were later bulldozed over. Some of these kingdoms, just as easily as they were constructed, they crumbled soon after. And although for a time each of these kingdoms in history, they seem so powerful, they seem so long-lasting, they seem so indestructible, the basic point is none of the earthly kingdoms stood the test of time. No earthly king, no earthly kingdom has ever outlasted time. It's an important lesson for us as Christians to learn, especially as we take up residence here in this earthly kingdom. And it reminds me of this poem uh, by uh, Percy Shelley called Ozymandias. And uh, I'm not a poetry person in any kind of way. Uh, Poetry gives me a headache. It's confusing. Um, But I was introduced to this poem as a sophomore in high school. uh, And I remember reading it... um, as a sophomore in English class, and, 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 and after it was finished, uh, I was just thinking, well, what was the point of that? <laughs> what does this mean? Uh, and I didn't understand it. And then it was explained to me, and after that, the, the poem is simply, it's haunted me. Um, it's really struck a chord in me. And I, let me read for you. I have it up here. This is the poem. This is Ozymandias. It says this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a, shat- a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sand stretch far away. Now, some of you totally understand it. Some of you, like me, are going, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. What does that mean? Well, this poem tells of a king who erected a statue to represent his greatness and his grandness. And he wanted people to behold and despair at his works and his might. There's this line here. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. 
And yet years later, the statue sits in a barren land, decaying and lying in ruin. It says, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And the poem is meant to capture this inevitable truth, which is that all earthly kingdoms radiate in earthly glory for a time, but then all of that soon comes to pass. Right? Just as Babylon was this powerful empire, it was quickly replaced by another kingdom. And then that kingdom rose to power, and then that was replaced by another kingdom, and so on and so forth. And such goes all the kingdoms of this world. And the point is, this, just as you see little kids who, who take uh, building blocks and they meticulously stack these building blocks as high as they can, and then they knock them over, that's pretty much a parable of the doom and destruction and destiny of every earthly kingdom. That for a while it's erected high and looks mighty, but then it's erased easily. And it's forgotten. So then we read in verse 35, it says, The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Here's the point of the dream. It's reminding us to keep in check how much hope and how much trust we are putting in the dealings and the proceedings of this earthly foreign kingdom. You know, as Elder Moon prayed in his prayer about our nation, we live, we inhabit such a unique time, such a polarized time, polarized society where everybody has such strong convictions and strong opinions and over all sorts of things and politics and, and, and economics and, and policies and culture. And we all have thoughts, don't we? And it's so easy for Christians to feel the tug to get swept up just like everybody else into all the affairs and the busyness of this world when we must remember at the end of the day the head of gold was replaced and every kingdom after that was replaced and so on and so forth until the end of history. This kingdom that we live in, this country that we live in, one day as great as it is, will one day be replaced. That politicians and elected leaders, both locally and nationally, are still but earthly men and women. That they, like the kingdoms and nations and states and lands that they represent and rule, will one day come and go. For us, they may never pass in our lifetime, but in the sea of history, they will pass. Now, by bringing this up, my point isn't this. My point isn't to say that the earthly kingdoms and the affairs of this world are unimportant. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying, you know, politics and economics and policies and culture and all that is unimportant. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it's not ultimate. Because knowing this makes a big difference and it changes the way you live life in this kingdom. How much hope are you placing in the, for example, political landscape of our own country? How much hope are you placing in this earthly kingdom? You know, consider how you write a paper. When you write a paper, I hope you all write a, a draft, and then you turn in a final copy once it's edited. Now, if you think the draft that you write is the final thing, then you're going to be so distraught when you read over it and you find your spelling mistakes and your grammatical errors and, you know, how convoluted and long your sentences are. Uh, my first year of seminary, they required, it was mandatory that every student take, uh, make an appointment with the writing center. Uh, and I thank God that, you know, I had to do that because I remember going with my first draft of theological writing and just being absolutely humbled uh, because it became abundantly clear that I didn't know how to write. 
And I remember being so discouraged. I was with a writing consultant. And I was so discouraged and distraught because uh, the whole thing was covered in red. Uh, one professor one time wrote, uh, you need to learn how to use commas uh, in my, in my uh, manuscript. And I remember just being in, the, in, in this, you know, writing with his writing consultant and just like almost in tears because I just felt like I don't belong here. I just, oh my, my goodness, my writing is so awful. And I felt bad for her because she had to like somehow become a counselor and start counseling my soul and telling me, you know, this is, it's okay, Andrew, you know. I know learning a second language is hard. I'm like, English is my first language! You know, I'm from Baltimore, not Busan. Um. And she was just reminding me, this is precisely why people have to come to the right. This is why we require all students. You know, if you think the draft is the final thing, you're in big, big trouble. If we're living in this world and this kingdom and America and all we know is the final thing, then it's really scary because we need to make sure we get everything right. There's no room for mistakes in terms of our government and the laws we pass. Here's the thing, when Christians live as if this earthly kingdom, right, our American government and our politics and in all of our culture, if we live as if um, that's more than important, if we live as if that's ultimate, then we frankly, we don't have the luxury of exhibiting Christian character in our, act in our interactions with people who disagree with us because things are too urgent, things are too, uh, too important, the stakes are way too high. And so what happens is uh, when believers lose sight that every earthly kingdom is temporary and fading, that's when Christians become just as nasty or honestly even nastier than other people when it comes to engaging in discourse and sharing opinions. It's honestly one of the most frightening things I see when people who say that they are Christians out in the public discourse really handle themselves in a nastier way than somebody who says, I'm an atheist. Because if this is it, if the earthly kingdom is all that there really is, then we need to get it right now. But when that happens, Christians start living and acting according to the standards of the kingdom of this world because they've lost sight of the kingdom of God. So, one, it's a sober reminder for us as, as Christians. Yeah, we should care about the things happening in this world, but we must keep in mind our citizenship is not of this world. And it's really a travesty when Christians who are called to be salt of the world are no longer salt. They've lost their saltiness and they instead add bitterness to the world. Or Christians who are called to be the light of the world no longer shine in brilliance and yet just contribute to the darkness of the world. So to have a biblical view of this world and of this earthly kingdom that we inhabit is to remember even the head of gold was replaced. I'm not suggesting we disregard the importance of the affairs of this world, but we certainly must dismiss the myth of its ultimacy. So that's an earthly kingdom. Well, what about an eternal kingdom? That's our second point. Next in the dream, a stone appears, and this stone, it strikes the feet of this image, and it breaks everything into pieces. And so the interpretation is found in verse 44. If you read it with me, it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut, and that it broken pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And here's the point. This stone, it represents an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, and it comes to replace 
all of the earthly kingdoms. And this is a really hopeful picture because we finally see something enduring. We finally see something everlasting, something eternal. Because when this new kingdom comes, it's going to replace the kingdoms of this earth and this new kingdom will never be destroyed because this kingdom, we're told, is set up by God himself. God who is that ancient architect, that eternal engineer. So Hebrews 11 says of Abraham this, by faith, he went to live in that land of promise for he was looking forward to the city, that kingdom that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And it's in this heavenly, eternal kingdom that our citizenship as believers belongs. But here's the thing about God's eternal kingdom. Notice how when the earthly kingdoms are represented, they're represented by four materials. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And all of those materials are of some value. They're valuable in some way. But then this, uh, this stone, this God's kingdom that's represented by the stone, the stone is what kind of material? It's, it's common. It's, there's nothing dazzling about it. There's nothing attention-grabbing about it. And it seems so common until you notice that this stone is said is not cut out by human hands, meaning that the origins of this kingdom are not with man, that this kingdom is a divine kingdom, and its king does not come from the line of men. Because you see, the coming of the kingdom... The kingdom of God promised here corresponds to the coming of the king who brings his kingdom with him. And it's interesting because the stone represents the kingdom, but the stone also represents the king. When it says the stone wasn't cut with human hands, it means this stone is not of human origin. Because this king is not from earth, but he is from heaven. And the stone isn't identified until Apostle Peter is preaching in the book of Acts. And in Acts 4, verse 11, this is what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus is the king who came into this world and he brought his kingdom with him. And this is actually what we remember in the Christmas, the Advent season. And when we remember that, remember again how Jesus came. Because Jesus himself, just like the stone, did not come in the appearance of something flashy and glamorous. Jesus himself came in the appearance of something as common as a stone. Because when Jesus came to this earth, he did not come as a mighty king on a war horse, but he came as a baby boy, the son of a carpenter, born in an animal's feeding trough. There's nothing spectacular, nothing dazzling about this Jesus. And yet there's nothing common about this Jesus. Because Jesus came to bring and to initiate a kingdom that would destroy the kingdoms of this world and replace it with a better one. And this is why in Mark, when Jesus comes, he begins his ministry by proclaiming this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus saying, I, the king, have come and I brought my kingdom to this earth. And that's good news, but there's better news because Jesus didn't just bring the kingdom. He brought you into the kingdom. So Colossians 1, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead as he was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, he exchanged your citizenship in this world for the citizenship of his kingdom. Basically, he gave you a new passport because he gave you a new identity. He gave you a new identity because he gave you a new citizenship. He gave you a new citizenship because he made you a new creation. Now that he's made you a new creation, he's given you a new calling. You belong to his kingdom. You are a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this world. But while you wait for the return of that king, while you live out an earthly citizenship, you live it with the calling to be his aroma and to be his ambassador. That's your purpose. That's your calling here in this world. It's important that you understand this. As his aroma, as his ambassador, what you're not called to do is this. You are not called to transform the earthly kingdom to become the eternal kingdom. You see, our job is not to take the kingdom of this world and to make them Christian. Because what we see happening in this vision is that it's not the earthly kingdom transforms to the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom comes and it replaces the earthly kingdom. Meaning our purpose, our role, the way we engage in the world is not to take the things of the world and to make them look like God's kingdom. God's kingdom is an opposing kingdom. God's kingdom is already present and it's here. Rather, your job as heavenly citizens is to bear witness to that kingdom. It's to testify to that kingdom. It's to represent that kingdom. And you do it not by assimilating into the world and looking just like everybody else. And it's not by separating yourself from the world and becoming so disinterested in the affairs around us. Rather, as this new citizen, this new creation with the new calling, you engage in the earthly kingdom because you live according to the ethics and the principles and the values of God's eternal kingdom. You live here now as the aroma, bringing the smell of heaven to earth. You live as an ambassador bringing the values of the kingdom to here on this earth, which leads to this third point, engaging the kingdoms. So we're not to put our hope in the earthly kingdom. We're to understand our citizenship is in the eternal kingdom. So how do we engage these kingdoms? Well, Daniel lives uh, in a way where he provides a helpful model for us. Right? When we take a look at his life, what, what, what do we learn? And first is this, uh, Daniel refuses to assimilate. Daniel refuses to act like everybody else in the world by not valuing what they value. Now consider how the story began. Uh, the story began by Daniel being brought in to the king's presence to tell him the dream. Now remember, this is something that nobody else in the entire kingdom could do. And Daniel is able to do it. Now, in selfish ambition, Daniel could have positioned himself to look better uh, than everybody else before the king, right? to get the king's favor. Daniel could have come and said, well, king, I heard that nobody else can do this, but I'm your man, I can do this. But he refuses to selfish ambition to put himself first. In fact, and this is the, the way the text describes this is amazing because he's actually contrasted with the king's guard. Ariok, if you actually look at verse 25, look at, what the, look at what this guy does. He comes and he appears before Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25, he says, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. King, look what I found. Well, no, that's not true at all. Because Daniel volunteered himself. And second, the only reason that you met Daniel is because you went to kill him. 
And so whereas this guy is trying to take credit for something that really doesn't belong to him, Daniel's response is so different. Daniel stands before the king in verse 27, and look at what it says. He says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but I can do it because I'm so gifted. No, that's not what he says at all. He says, Nobody could show what the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. When we live in a world where everybody's trying to get ahead of one another and try to make a name for themselves, Daniel doesn't live according to the principles and the values of this earthly kingdom, but he attributes all glory to God. He doesn't try to steal the credit for himself, but he happily points it back to God. Because Daniel belongs to the kingdom. He belongs to the kingdom of God, so he doesn't doesn't try to make a name for himself. He doesn't need to make a name for himself. Because he doesn't see himself as the king of his own kingdom. But he humbly recognizes that God is that king. And then notice this, this other little detail. It's so easy to kind of go by it really quickly, but if you notice, he doesn't put others down. Look at verse 30. He says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. And this part's where it's important. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. You see, he doesn't bulldoze other pe- over other people in order to secure his own reputation or achieve his own recognition. He doesn't climb over others in order to come out on top. He says, not because of any wisdom I have more than somebody else. You see, he's refusing to say, hey, I can reveal the dream to you, Nebuchadnezzar, better than others can. Because I'm better than others. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, these guys can't do it because they're worse than me. He insists, it's not because I'm wiser than other people. It's not because people are more foolish than me. You see, Daniel is able to exhibit a certain kind of humility as he engages the world. Because he's operating according to different principles. Not to the kingdom of the world, but to the kingdom of God, which tells you that I don't need to look better than other people or I don't need people to look worse than me in order to have an identity. You see, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom by his grace and his grace alone, it frees you to now engage in the affairs of this world by not chasing after the things of this world. And so you'll start living in this earthly kingdom as an aroma, as an ambassador, the values and the principles of the kingdom of God. You will be able to show to the world the humility of Jesus. You'll be able to point everything back to God. You may have seen that Nick Foles video that came out about a month ago in an interview where he gladly attributed the glory back to God because he knows that it's not about making a name for himself. So Daniel doesn't assimilate to the world, but you also notice Daniel doesn't separate himself from the world. He doesn't run away from his duties. He doesn't run away from the calling because at the end of the story, after Daniel reveals everything, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed that he bestows all these honors on Daniel. So it says in verse 38 that Nebuchadnezzar uh, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Meaning that God positioned Daniel in a place of great influence and impact. And then Daniel didn't shy away from it. Daniel Daniel didn't excuse himself from serving this earthly king and the kingdom. Instead, he understood, God has placed me here for a reason. He's placed me here to serve, and so I'm going to step up to where God has placed me and the calling he's placed me, which is basically this. 
Daniel, I want you to be a blessing to Babylon. Babylon is a foreign nation, a foreign kingdom. They've exiled you. They've taken you away from your home. They're the enemy. I want you to be a blessing to them. Don't separate yourself from them. Go and bless them. Now this story may sound really familiar because it's actually picking up on a very similar motif to the story in Genesis. If you remember that story in Genesis, remember Joseph? Joseph, just like Daniel, is exiled. He's taken away from home into a foreign country, a foreign land, into Egypt. And there, he's called into the presence of a king. And there, God gives him the interpretation of the king's dream, Pharaoh's dream. And then as a result of that, what happens? Joseph is honored. He's placed and installed as Pharaoh's number two. And under Joseph's service, Egypt flourishes economically. Right? God uses Joseph to bless this foreign kingdom. Through Joseph, Egypt right, grows in wealth and in prosperity, and he keeps the nation from collapsing under an impending famine that's going to come. And Daniel does the same thing. In exile, in the land of his enemy, in the land that's not his home, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't separate, but he engages in the affairs of the world. Because he understands God has positioned and placed me here for a purpose. And the way I do that is not by assimilating too closely and losing my saltiness and my brilliance as a salt and light, but neither is it to separate myself. But it's to understand I've been called as an aroma and as an ambassador. And it's really important for you to understand that. Because some of you may enter into your workplace, you may enter into your school, and you're just here to do a job. Just to make money so you can get by. So you can just... Uh, cruise through life until Jesus comes back. But maybe God is saying, hey, don't separate yourself from that. God has placed you where you are, in your company, in your position, in your office, in that classroom, in that homeroom, in that dorm, in that apartment building, in that part of the cul-de-sac. He's placed you there for a reason. Don't separate. But engage the world. Be a salt. Be a light. You know, Jeremiah 29, it's so instructive for all of us. So for how we are called to live in this foreign kingdom. So Jeremiah was written before Daniel, and I want you to hear what it, what, what it says in Jeremiah 29. Very famous verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then it says here, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That God calls his people, people with a heavenly citizenship, to seek the welfare, the peace, the prosperity of the kingdom that he's placed them in. A place where he's exiled them. See, God's calling for us is not to disengage from the world, to isolate ourselves, to withdraw, to live in these small Christian bubbles, these holy huddles. That we're not pleasing to God only as we gather, gather together, but that we're equally pleasing to God as we scatter out. <laughs> And God is saying, I've placed you in certain positions in your life where you can represent me, the king, and represent the kingdom. I've strategically placed you in the earthly kingdom to represent the values and the principles of the eternal kingdom. God wants you to be a good earthly citizen who brings a blessing to the world, not a curse to the world. Because the reality is this, you can do this job better than any other person 
precisely because your citizenship is in heaven, because you've tasted the blessing of God's eternal kingdom. You know the hope, the renewal, the peace, the life there is in Christ and his kingdom, and so you can bring that to bear in this world. And so as you seek to live faithfully in this foreign land, you've you got to ask yourself one, one of two questions. I'll end here, but ask yourself this question. First, have I assimilated to this earthly kingdom around me? Really ask yourself this. Is there anything distinguishing about the way I conduct my life in the affairs of this world? Is there anything that's different? Am I being the aroma and being an ambassador of Christ that I would smell different and represent something different? And the second reflection, am I withdrawing from or am I seeking the welfare of every place God has called me to? Am I engaging my neighbors? Maybe God has placed you between a Muslim and a Hindu. Oh, but I'm Christian, so we need to withdraw and isolate ourselves. Or maybe God has placed you specifically there for a reason. I know some of us, we pray, oh, Lord, would you give... Uh, would you help us identify Christian workers, Christian uh, fellow employees, so I can go to work and be blessed? And that's a great prayer, right? But what if we prayed, Lord, send me into a team where there are no Christians so I can be the aroma and ambassador of Christ there? How do you engage now in the world? You know, friends, it's this. It's precisely because you belong to the kingdom of God that you are best qualified to do the job God wants you to do. Because your citizenship is in heaven, you can be the best, and you should be the best earthly citizen as you engage this world as the aroma and ambassador of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have a purpose for us here in this world, just as you sent your people into exile and you said, I'm sending you there to be a blessing there. We know, Lord, that here on this earth we are in exile. We're waiting our true home. Protect us, Lord, from both assimilating to this world and looking just like it. Or separating ourselves from the world and having nothing to do with it. Give us that wisdom by your Spirit to live as you have called us to. And let your kingdom come. Father, as we seek to advance it through our witness and testifying, Lord, by living in a different kind of way, and in that way bring glory to your name, O God. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, dear saints. Receive now the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.